You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mosaic Church Online today. My name is Morgan. So glad you're here with us. We are at the front end of a brand new series, as you can see, called One Another, where we're taking a look at how we fill in the blank when it comes to how we treat one another. And what I mean by fill in the blank is pretty simple. Uh, you know, When you read the words of Jesus and when you read the words of those first century eyewitnesses who, who followed him, there's this amazing pattern that you see over and over you see you read one little two-word amazing phrase that pops up over and over and over in their lips and on uh, their pens and in the parchment of the things that they wrote. It's those two little words, one another. But what's so amazing about that phrase is that there's always some other word in the form of an action item, in the form of some kind of to-do list that comes in front of that little phrase. There's stuff like encourage one another, serve one another, forgive one another. And those are all amazing. And let's just acknowledge we sure love it when people do that to us and for us. But let's also be honest that that kind of to-do list isn't exactly what comes to mind most naturally when it comes to how we one another, one another. What comes far more naturally, I think, is stuff like secretly rooting against one another's kids to fail in sports like, go Johnny. I kind of hope he strikes out. Stuff like be jealous of one another's new pool during COVID, as in what a nice little thing for them. Never listen to one another. And most of all, easiest of all, probably most satisfying of all right now is our national pastime of watching our preferred news network and blaming our nation's problems on one another. So if you're like me, as you're living out all the things we see right now in in real time, as we read about it, as we see it, as we experience all the tension, all the hatred, all the misunderstanding, all the very real conflict, if you're like me, you probably wonder at times, what should I do? Like right now, what's most important for me to do right now? What's most important to God? Not just right now, but maybe at any given moment. Now, thankfully for us, actually incredibly for us, someone else asked that same question of Jesus a long time ago. The the gospel historian, a, a Greek doctor turned Jesus follower named Luke, he recorded that question and this conversation for us one day between Jesus of Nazareth and someone pretty surprising. And we're gonna take a look at that conversation right now. Here's how the conversation went. And behold, it says in Luke 10, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this isn't some kind of Bible lawyer joke as in, have you heard the one about the lawyer and Jesus? And that's not it. No, this person was someone who was specifically an expert in Jewish law and who taught others. Think far less TV show attorney and far more law professor. But he stood up, it says, to put Jesus to the test. Why? Well, Jesus was known by this time, in this moment, in his ministry as a teacher. Some called him a rabbi, someone who came across as one who taught God's word with authority. It simply meant he knew his stuff. But the things he was teaching, 
the way he was talking didn't sit right with the lawyers, and the lawyers were getting nervous. See, by this time, Jesus had already given his Sermon on the Mount, which talked about stuff like, what God really wants for you is to love thy neighbor. As in, don't even go to church, Jesus said. Walk away from your offering until you have made things right with the one you even think has something against you. Jesus said stuff like, don't even think about calling out your neighbor for the speck you see in their eye until you have excavated the redwood forest in your own. Jesus said you have to love not just your friends and your family because anyone can do that. You've got to love your enemies. And most of all, most of all, Jesus said, whatever you would want someone to do for you, you've got to do that for them first. That's what God wants. And that's what Jesus preached. And that's amazing. And it's convicting. And it's really, really hard. And if you're like most people, if you're like me, if you're like this lawyer here, <laughs> you want a way out. You're looking for a loophole. So this lawyer is putting Jesus on the stand. He's cross-examining him, saying, Jesus, give a defense for what you're teaching, but this is never a good idea because Jesus flips it around on him as he does with you and with me and with us. And in true rabbinic form, Jesus asks the lawyer a question right back. Now, this one is kind of like the old joke about the two rabbis. As the joke goes, the younger rabbi in training asked the older rabbi one day a question. He asked him, he said, why do you always answer my question with a question? And the older rabbi looked at him, paused and said, why shouldn't I answer your question with a question. So Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. He said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer says, how I see it is that all of God's law, all those commandments can be summarized like this, two things, two ways, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But right here, I think we really begin to get a hint of what Jesus is up to because he doesn't say to him, you have answered truly. You have answered fully. You have answered meaningfully or even lovingly. No, he says, you, he only says, you have answered correctly. See, not only right here has Jesus turned the tables on the lawyer because in just a few verses, the lawyer who came in seeking to judge Jesus' words is now in the position somehow of having Jesus judge his own words. But not only that, Jesus only says, and I can imagine him saying it kind of like this, just to push the lawyer to ask for more, Jesus only says, you're correct, you're correct. As in, if all you want to be if all you want to be is correct, then I guess we're good. Go be correct. And you can feel the lawyer getting worked up right here. First, he's being judged. Second, this isn't the answer that he wanted because what he wanted, once more, what I want, what you want is that loophole. What I want is a pat on the back for the people that I love, not a critique of the way in which I don't love others. 
Verse 29, it says, but he desiring to justify himself, he desiring to be approved, that's what the word means. He desiring to feel okay about who he loves right now. He desiring for Jesus to affirm him and make him comfortable and assure him he was doing a really good job loving everyone because it's really, really hard. He asked this question, not to learn, not to do better, but to justify himself. He asked, and who is my neighbor? Now, you would have thought he would have learned by now that you do not ask Jesus a question if you do not really want to find out something you didn't want to know about. So the lawyer who is putting Jesus to the test gets this story and suddenly find, finds the tables turn over and over again. Verse 30, Jesus replied, here's what a neighbor's like. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. See, Jesus immediately puts us, the audience, into the story by establishing the setting. He says there's a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I think we got a picture of it. We're kind of right here. Yeah, this road was known to everyone in that day. That's why he picked it. This road was so dangerous. This road was so violent as it descended in sea level, at sea level from Jerusalem to Jericho with mountains and cliffs surrounding it that it became known. It was so dangerous, it became known as the bloody pass, as the way of blood. This is the equivalent of some part of town, some city, some road that maybe someone like you doesn't go through, doesn't go to. But Jer Jericho was a financially strategic city. Rulers and rich people lived there. So this man was going there to do business because, you know, like they say, in business, no risk no reward. So on the way, the worst happens. There was no reward and he's left for dead on the side of the road. This is terrible. Who will save him? Who will rescue him? Verse 31, Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road and the audience would have felt so good at that point because they knew the priests were the good guys. They were culturally similar to themselves, to the victim in this story, ethnically similar, religiously obligated to love thy neighbor, except this one doesn't. Maybe he's afraid of being defiled by the blood from this man's wounds or getting his garments dirty, being unfit to serve in the temple. Maybe, maybe he's afraid of stopping in that neighborhood. Maybe it was legitimate. Maybe it wasn't. We don't know. We're only told this. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. See, the priest, God's priest, like a pastor or a preacher or an elder or a bishop, if that's your tradition, made an effort not to see. Wow, Jesus, that's not good. This story isn't going how I thought it would, but it gets worse. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Jesus, that's not good either. Jesus, this is not good at all. See, Levites were sort of like the, the mega volunteers, kind of like, like a deacon at a church, or like a, a team lead somewhere. They were leaders in their faith community. But the Levite as well, likewise, made the effort not to see. And so all sorts of thoughts would have been swirling through the minds of the people in the crowd that day as in, well, why didn't he stop? He should have. Or on the other hand, well, it's kind of reasonable that he didn't stop. Who could blame them for not stopping? It could have been a trap or an ambush. But Jesus goes on. But he says, but 
a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, oh, Jesus, the crowd would have been thinking, I know what's going to happen when the Samaritan saw him, when he found the vulnerable Jew all alone. That Samaritan is going to finish what the robber started because that's what people like them do accept. That's not what happens in Jesus's story. Verse 33 says, as Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Oh no, Jesus, this is a terrible parable. The Samaritan is the hero. No, 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 wait, Jesus, you know this. You gotta know this, like your, like your buddy John. Put it over in his gospel. The Jews, well, they don't have dealings with the Samaritans. We don't talk, we don't connect, we don't even wanna understand each other, and we definitely don't love thy neighbor because we're good, they're bad, and you don't have to love bad people. Jesus, you can't possibly be pulling out the Samaritan as the hero in the story. Cue the eye rolls. Cue the groans. Why? Well, back in the ninth century, someone named King Omri, the sixth king of Israel and the father of old Ahab himself, in defiance of his own people to the south in Judah, King Omri established Samaria as the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom. And because of that, there was a centuries-old, long-standing, historical, political division between Jews and Samaritans. But that's not all. Because King Omri, bless him, didn't just stop there. He erected a temple to the god Baal as well, introducing idolatry to those in Samaria, in Israel. And because of that, there was religious division as well as political division. But that's not all. Because in the mix of all of that, there was racial division as well. See, when the Assyrians conquered Israel, conquered Samaria after Omri and before Jesus, they intermarried with the Jewish people. They mixed their blood and their ethnicity and their race. And so when you're Jesus and you say to a Jew, there's a Samaritan coming at you on the Jericho Road in that part of town, it means you've got coming at you someone who is your personal nightmare, someone who represents everything you stand against and whom you have been taught to stand against. See, in one single descriptor, you have someone who represents the other political party, the other faith system, another skin color, someone who represents, in this case, even a people group who have harmed your ancestors. I mean, Jesus, could you possibly be more offensive right here? I mean, Jesus, could you possibly have picked a more inflammatory hero? I mean, if only Jesus's words could somehow, some way possibly be relevant to us today. Now, I think that lawyer, he's kind of like Billy D. Williams in that old Star Wars movie, kind of like, you know, Jesus, I know I'm the one who asked the question, but come on, this deal is getting worse all the time. So it was. Why? Because just like that, Jesus has made the one asking the question, the one who thinks they've got it all together, the one on top, the good person. Jesus has made that one the one on the bottom, the one who has been victimized, the one who is now in need, who's left bleeding and dying on the side of the road and whose own people have abandoned him. And just like that, also, Jesus has made the hero of the story, depending on who you are today, and let's see if I can try to get everybody here. The Republican congressman, he's made the hero, the Black Lives Matter activist, the Muslim cleric, the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel preacher, the president of the United States, the socialist Democrat running for office, the abortion doctor, the LBGTQ pastor, 
the police chief, a man just like all those other men who have harmed you, a leader just like all those other leaders who have harmed you, a woman just like all those other women who have harmed you, the libertarian, the one who's a part of the group you know hates people like you or that you hate, or let's just be honest because we're too polite to say it, the kind of person we just wish would stop hanging around our church. That's the Samaritan. So what did the Samaritan Jew do, Jesus? Like, is there a definition you can give us? I mean, could you be more specific than just that he had compassion like Jesus? Tell us what it really looks like to love one another. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan went to him because most people wouldn't and won't. He went to him because the Levite and the priest walked away. He went to him and poured wine on his wounds. The alcohol would have cleaned the wounds. The olive oil would have soothed the wounds. And he used his own money to fund the care of his own enemy, and he promised to return one day to put all things right. This is incredible. Look at all the barriers the Samaritan had to cross. He had to cross a religious barrier, a political barrier, a racial barrier, and he ran the risk of being misunderstood by his own people, being called a traitor by his own people if he loved someone like this Jew, and yet he doesn't. And Jesus asks you, and he asks me, and he asks the lawyer right now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And do you know what the lawyer says in return? Well, it wasn't so much what he did say. It was what he didn't say. His answer still reveals how offended he was at Jesus's choice of hero in the story. You would have figured he would have answered in the simplest way. You would have figured he would have said, the Samaritan. Oh, but he can't even bring himself to say the word. Instead, he says, through clenched teeth, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He chokes on acknowledging the humanity of the Savior in the story. And so Jesus said, now you go and do likewise. Why does Jesus end like this? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, but let me give you just one. You may have heard the name Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a writer. She's written a number of books on the spiritual life. In one of her books, she talks about the time when she was in seminary and she had spent four hours straight in the library with like a 10-pound textbook written by the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. You may know that name. And I've been in a similar position before. Maybe you have been where you're, you're wrestling through like a big textbook. And you know, you can do a lot in four hours, which is why some of you teens and students aren't too excited about going back to school anytime soon whatever that's going to look like. But Barbara Brown Taylor kept reading and rereading Barth's chapter on the dual natures of Christ, his human nature, his divine nature, or something pithy like that, she said. But she just couldn't get it, she said. So she kept biting her fingernails. She kept drinking cup after cup of black coffee until about on like the fifth time through the chapter, she said she got it. She finally got it. Her hours of study had finally paid off. The only thing left to do, she said, was to go out on campus into the quadrangle and to let it all out and to scream because she felt so good. She had got it. But then she said, 
after her screaming fit, after letting it all out, she remembers being surprised that the quadrangle had not changed because of her newfound understanding. The trees were right where they had always been, she said. The red brick buildings looked exactly the same, and she was disappointed. The world around her hadn't changed just because she had learned something. Why not? She says she came to understand about understanding something which the world knows, the world sees, but sometimes the followers of Christ forget, which is that talk is cheap which is that unless words are turned into actions, the words are meaningless. And Jesus shows us the same thing in his life as well right here. Because do you know what the gospel writer Luke said about Jesus just before he told this parable? Just a few verses before, in the chapter before, it says Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He had set his face, he was going without question, to the place he knew he was going to die. As in, he said, enough sermons on the mount from me, he's saying. I posted enough links to enough articles everyone should read. I posted enough links to stuff like www.MosesWasTheMan.com or enough hashtags on Twitter like y'all should check out King David's new single. It's pretty hot. Enough talk, enough links, enough debate. I'm going to Jerusalem to show you what the kingdom of God is all about. So what is it all about? Well, Jesus shows us, he teaches, it's a number of things, but right here, right here, and one day on that cross in Jerusalem, what it means not to be a Christian, because that's easy, but to follow Jesus, because it's hard. What it means to follow him in his kingdom is showing compassion even to our enemies. Brian Stevenson, the tremendous activist and writer, in his book, which was made into a movie, he said this, quote, sometimes we are fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we are shattered by the things we never would have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis of our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. I love this. He's saying only as we sustain our capacity for compassion for others, only as we remember our shared vulnerability with the other, can we in the end be good Samaritans. And you know what? I think he's right. So how, how do we do that? How do we sustain our capacity for compassion? Here's how. It's because there's far less of a what the kingdom of God is all about. But it's far more because there's a who. It's because there isn't just a good Samaritan in the story right here. There's actually a great Samaritan, if you'll see him. Uh, there's someone greater than the good Samaritan. There's someone better than the good Samaritan. Jesus of Nazareth is the great Samaritan. He is the true Savior in the story. He is the one who has come to us. He is the one who has found us. We who have fell among robbers, we who have fell into the trap of the enemy, we who have fallen into the sin and into the hands of those 
those who did not, do not care about us. We have been passed by, by others who were supposed to help. But Jesus does not do that, did not do that. He crossed every barrier. Though he was God, he became human. With his own tears, he has tended to us. And by his own wounds, he has paid for our healing. He himself has paid, not just at the risk of his own life, not just at the cost of his own sort of expense, but at the cost of his own life to care for us now. And he's promised to meet all our future needs. And like that, good Samaritan, the great Samaritan, has promised to return and to one day make all things right, put all things new, make it all better. Why does he do this? Let me tell you why. He did this. He came to do this to show you he cares about every man in every ditch on the side of every road somewhere. He came to show you he cares about every woman who has fallen into the hands of some man or men stronger than she. He cares about every child who's fallen into the ditch of some educational system or some a culture system that could not catch them and yet that he cares about every person who has fallen into the ditch of hate, of mistrust, of putting political ideology before the filter of Christian faith and love of neighbor as self. He cares for everyone. And Jesus came down to walk the bloody path, to walk the way of blood, to show us mercy. And he did it to show us the kind of power it's going to take to live this out. What do I mean? I mean this. In telling this terrible parable. Jesus shows us that guilt alone can never make us do this. You know the priest had to feel guilty when he passed by. You know the Levite had to feel guilty when he passed by. But guilt does not change people. So if you're feeling guilty right now, please stop. It won't change you. It won't change me. Nor, Jesus is saying, does mere morality alone change people. The priest and the Levite are both examples of how a mere moral system, mere religion, mere even church going does not change people. Those things alone won't change you into the kind of a person who goes and does likewise, who goes and shows mercy. So what will? Oh, it's only by experiencing the depths of what Jesus is pressing. This lawyer and this crowd and you and me and every Democrat and every Republican today to see, which is that we are the ones in need of a savior. We are the ones who cannot save themselves, fallen into the hands of the thief. We are the ones left for dead apart from the rescue and saving by our great Samaritan. Can you acknowledge that truth today? Oh, we choke on that. Like the lawyer choked on that. We choke on the truth that we need a savior like that. We choke on the truth that the ones who think they have it all together are the very ones over and over. Jesus says they don't. And only when your heart is shattered by the sheer compassion of the person and the sheer mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ will you be able to now. Now, go and do likewise. Only when your heart is transformed by this thought, while I was still God's enemy, he reconciled me to him by the death of his own son. Will you be able to love every single human being, every neighbor on social media who has fallen on the side of the road in every single ditch? Only then will you be able to. And here, finally, is now our one another for today. <laughs> Only then, now. If we'll do this, if we'll see this, can we now be able to do this, as the Apostle Paul put it now, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? 
the law of Christ. The law of Christ. The law of Christ. It's so simple. You don't even have to write it down. Love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you. Bear one another's burdens as I have borne yours. And how did he do that? Not just by standing next to us or even near to us, though he did that, but by standing for us, standing up for us in the place where we were weak and we couldn't do it and we didn't have it all together. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He said, I'm coming close to you. I've got this. We're going to be okay. If we'll see this today, friends, church family, we can. We can truly go and do likewise. Let me pray for you now. We're going to ask God for grace and help to do just that. Lord, we thank you today. As much as it may pain me, pain us to see this, we thank you for today that you call us, that you call us to follow you in ways we may find difficult, painful, countercultural. Lord, help us. Help us to see this better. Help me to see this better. Help us to live this better. Help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill your royal law. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.